So I've been looking forward to this panel for weeks, ever since Zach asked me to chair it. Um, welcome to the first edition of Sound Education 2018. Um, I'm thrilled to be taking part in this conference. My name is Wade Rausch. I'm the host and producer of a science and technology podcast called Soonish. Um, thank you. I'm co-founder of Hub and Spoke, which uh, Tamar explained a little bit about Hub and Spoke in one of the previous sessions. And uh, like all of the Hub and Spoke podcasts, maybe minus one are here today. So if you see us wandering around, stop us in the hall and ask us what these little pins are for. So I didn't start podcasting until about two years ago, but I actually uh, fell under the spell of great audio storytelling in 2007. And this was just after um, I had broken up with my life partner of 19 years, and I had just moved from San Francisco back to Boston, and um, I was on my own for the first time in a long time, and living here in Boston, and decided um, to uh, get in the car and drive home uh, to visit my parents for Thanksgiving. So from, and they live in Traverse City, Michigan. So it's like a 17-hour drive. And um, I didn't have anything to listen to. Um, you, you know, I didn't know what NPR stations were going to be available on the way there and back, but I did have an iPod, an actual iPod, because this is 2007. And um, I basically loaded up all of Radiolab. And this is 2007, so the show was only about five years old at that point. And it was like probably the last moment in history where it would have been like even possible to binge all of Radiolab. And now it would be like humanly impossible to do that um, because the show's been around for, for so long. But um, basically I did listen to all of the available Radiolab episodes over the 34 hours of driving from Boston to Michigan and back. And that was the, the experience that convinced me that there was something special and something amazing and compelling going on here. I'd never heard that kind of storytelling happening through audio. It was something new to me. Um, I've learned since that there's a long and rich heritage of experimental audio and all sorts of different sound-rich approaches to audio storytelling. But to me, that was my first exposure. And I, I absolutely fell in love and kept listening. And eventually, when the time was right, I took the opportunity to make the switch from being a print and online-only journalist to being a, a, a podcaster. So thank you, guys. And thank you to Jad and Robert and everyone else who's ever been at Radiolab because you've given a special gift to the whole world. And thank so uh, I just wanted to start off by saying that. Okay, thank now you. I'm actually going to get thank the panel you. started. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a big part of the team behind Radiolab with us. Now, Radiolab, obviously, as you all know, or you wouldn't be here, is um, the leading, the leading uh, audio show about science and the larger world around science. It's not exclusively about science anymore, as, uh, as you might know from listening to spin-offs like More Perfect. Um, but it has a, uh, an absolutely unique, um, sound-rich approach to storytelling, whether it's a story about science or, or the Supreme Court. And these are three of the people who make it happen. So um, I'm going to introduce them, and then each of them is going to take about 15 minutes to walk through what they do for the show. And by the end, you're going to get a really good picture of sort of behind the scenes at Radiolab and how an episode of Radiolab comes together. So Rachel Cusick is an assistant producer at Radiolab and uh, works with a special projects unit, right? Mm -hmm. And um, she graduated from Cornell with a degree in food science yeah. and journalism. Yeah. 
which basically means, I'm, I'm reading from her bio now. Um, we are so lucky, by the yeah. way. Oh, yeah, every she, Friday meeting, Rachel. That's how I bring people food? over, yeah. Yeah. cupcakes. Ice cream, all yeah. sorts of oh, stuff. All awesome. the whole okay. works. Homemade, <laughs> so, uh, Rachel, before Radiolab, Rachel was at NPR and Slate and Politico, and, and now they're very lucky to have her at WNYC. Okay, um, Annie in the middle, is a producer at Radiolab. Uh, before that, she was an indie producer in um, St. John's, Newfoundland. Wow. Um, she learned to speak radio from Chris Brooks at Battery Radio and Rob Rosenthal at Massachusetts's own Transom Story Workshop. Yeah. And um, Dylan, at the end, is director of sound design. Dylan Keefe, director of sound design at Radiolab. Uh, he's also a bassist and one of the founding members of the multi-platinum selling alternative rock band, Marcy Playground. Mm. So, um, what's going to happen today is, as I said, each of them is going to talk a little bit. So Rachel's going to start off talking about researching and reporting Radiolab stories. So the stuff that happens before they even sit down in the studio and start mm -hmm. having their tracking sessions, right? Yeah. Um, Annie's going to talk about production and building a show. And then um, Dylan's going to talk about sound design and all the stuff that happens after the tracking, but before you hit publish. Mm -hmm. And um, they, reached, they brought some audio, so I think we'll be hearing some, uh, some bits and pieces of stuff they've been working on. And we also want to leave time for Q&A at the end. So we'll try and keep things moving along. Um, Rachel, do you want to start? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to sit over there at the other end. Okay. Hi, everybody. So I am Rachel. I'm an assistant producer, like Wade said. Um, so for the special projects unit, basically we're doing a series of mini-series that are very similar to the show but do deep dives on specific topics. So if anyone listened to the Gonad series that came out this past spring, that's one of them. So I'm going to talk about how we found ideas for that series and then like how you go about just, you're excited about one thing and then how you make it into this beast of a story. Um, and I'll talk about like generally how we talk about stories and then also specifically with this Gonad series. All right, all right. Okay, very savvy with technology, as you can all see. Okay, okay, cool. So, how you find a story, basically we have pitch meetings every other Friday and you'll be in a meeting and everyone puts their pitches on a document and we go by emojis, so it's like thumbs up, fist bump, or thumbs down. And <laughs> fist bump basically means like, tell me more, I don't totally understand this, and a thumbs up is like, everyone's like, great, let's go ahead and report this story. And so things that make people on the team give a thumbs up are characters. So if there's someone who just like feels really interesting and complex and like this person, oh yes, this person that feels kind of like dynamic in their own right, that's really interesting. Um, so we were talking about on the way up here the Oliver Sipple story. Um, so there's just a person whose story maybe you've heard of and you just didn't think of it in that way and it makes you just lean in, which is another part where you're like, sitting and we always focus on like the physicality of listening to a pitch so you're listening and you're like oh that feels really intriguing and it's like paying attention to your body language and just seeing where you yourself lean in is really important about like your own interests and leaning into that um, and questions like a lot of things will be like we'll, we'll be talking about pitches and we're like okay like what's the bigger question here where do you feel torn? Maybe you have your own values and this pitch makes you feel differently about those values. Something that it's like, not just a simple like, who is this person? It's like, 
why is this so complicated? Those like larger questions is something that we often talk about. Um, and the double dip is something we, was like one of the first story concepts that really intrigued me when I got on the team. It's like a story can be moving along and it's just like above the surface and then it dips down into this idea of like, oh, that's interesting. And like, that's a lean in moment. And then it goes back up for, and you're like moving along with that second dip. And then again, it dips. So it's like an interesting like double, moment where you're like, oh, I thought I, I got a grasp on what was happening, it changed, and then it changed again and made you kind of consider things differently for a second time, and that's really important for us for stories. Um, and so for gonads, what that looked like is basically Molly was tasked with a series. She was really interested in reproduction, reproduction, and but it's just like a huge world. Like Even though it sounds kind of specific, you're just like, where the hell do I start from here? There's so many stories and people you could talk about. So basically for the first few months, we just made like a bunch of calls and like tried to figure out what people were interested in. And so much of that was just like leaning back and letting people like, have you thought about this really weird thing that no one else is talking about? I love it. And you just like let them go. And that curiosity so often will lead you to like this random rabbit hole. Um, and I remember at one point Molly like sat me down in an office and was like, okay, one thing I want to figure out maybe ideally is this way that like my body feels that it fits together perfectly. Like in the womb, I was like sitting like this and like my knees fit together in this weird way and my arms fit together. It's almost like a puzzle piece. And I wonder if there's like a reproductive process behind that. And it was just such a weird, quirky question that like she had wondered about for so long. And it was just like this very simple way of like, this is a really random question that probably people right now are giving me weird stares about. But if you like lean into those things that you're super curious about, that is like a really good instinct to follow. Um, and then a lot of these phone calls, you'll be calling around, you ask people for recommendations when you're on the phone with them, you're like, hey, who else should I talk to? Um, and that leads you to interviews, which basically, Kodluk Akte, who is one of the main characters in this series, we got on the phone with him just randomly, he was recommended by someone, and we spoke to him for two hours on the phone, and then we had three separate interviews after that, which were each three hours. And so a lot of the times you're just like going based off of this person, like you ask about their work and then where that led them and where they got, how they got there. Um, and so a lot of it is just like shots in the dark about like following other people's curiosities. Uh, and so I wanna talk a little bit about once you get on the phone, what you're looking for in those conversations. So Kodluk Akte was the first person who really just started us down this journey of like how gonads became gonads. And so I'm gonna play a clip about what he said that really made us lean in. You can just, you can just space, oh, space. space bar, yeah, hit okay, and then and just hit the quit. space bar instead. There you go. And this whole series like kind of came into being um, with a single phrase. All right, the duck is in the house. from this guy. Can you say for me your name and how you identify yourself? I'm Kutluk Oktai. I am an ovarian biologist. So I have a uh, research laboratory uh, at Yale University School of Medicine. So Akte, he is the one who said the gonads are magical organs. <laughs> they are. Gonads <laughs> are magical organs. And so Molly was on the phone with this guy on a random Friday night, and she just ran out of the office, and she was like, this man just said the oddest thing to me. I don't know if I understand it, but I'm like really intrigued by it. And she just ran, she was like, go, find stories where like 
gonads are magical. And so, <laughs> and it's like so abstract, but also just like this amazing place where you can just be like, all right, let's go for it. And for like weeks and weeks and weeks, then we tried to figure out how this thing could frame a whole series that we, we had no idea he was gonna come in our path, but like somehow he shaped this whole thing. And so many times stories happen that way that there's like a really compelling person that can just change the trajectory. And so from Akte, we learn this story about a primordial journey where your primordial germ cells go on this journey before you're even born. And he gave us a lot of like the backbone and told us why it's interesting, but we needed someone to fill in those parts and like explain in details in ways that felt like tangible. And that led us to Blanche Cable, who's this, just like the most charming woman from North Carolina who studies this. And I found her just because she's like one of the main researchers in the field. And I think from this clip, you'll be able to tell why we wanted to speak to her. Octa got me into the story, and so I ended up calling a bunch of people about it. In my lab, we have a slogan that says, go nads or go home. We have t-shirts. <laughs> you don't. You do? We do. We have a t-shirt. That is Blanche Cable, professor in cell biology at Duke University Medical Center. She essentially studies all the parts of the story we're about to tell you. They literally move. Wow, what? Wait, so how does a cell march? They actually extend philopodia, uh, which are little uh, cell-like feet. Okay. Is it like it pops out two feet and then it goes walking? Um, cells send out extensions, and that extension has a little adhesion molecule on it, like a little sticky spot. So when it puts its foot out, it can pull the rest of the cell up to it. So they take a hike, hike, hike. And interestingly, the germ cells seem to be holding hands like a long string of paper dolls. Okay. And they touch each other. It's as though they are, the whole crowd is like going together. And I thought those details that Blanche just spoke about, about like the string of paper dolls and their hands and feet, it was just so brilliant. Like we, we were looking for that after Octa. He gave us a lot of this like the core parts of this journey, but he couldn't make it feel alive. And so once we had that interview, we were like, okay, who can help us bring this story to life? And we had just like made a bunch more calls. We asked Octay who to talk to, and that's a way to go about it. And you help, once you like have these conversations, you're able to realize the questions that you yourself have and need to fill in. And a lot of these interviews, you're like stopping and pausing. You're like, okay, do I, can I visualize this in my head? If not, you just like, or you're like tuned into that and try to focus on these details. Um, and then once we had, Blanche, we had like the details, we had the backbone, but then we needed this bigger double dip question of like, okay, this is a really crazy journey, that's one dip, but then what is the bigger thing that we're trying to get at? And so we went on another journey looking for someone who could fill this in for us. And so that's what led us to David Page, who is this man. Oh, I did it again, I told you guys, I was so savvy. To go. These might be the last cells in the developing mammalian embryo to give up um, their world of possibilities. This is David Page. He is the director of the Whitehead Institute, biologist at MIT. <laughs> if you see what I'm saying. So basically when, a, when an egg is fertilized by a sperm, to go back to the, that beginning, um, the resulting cell called a zygote, the fertilized egg, has the possibility, has the potential to become every type of cell in the body. And as one cell becomes two, and two become four, and so on and so on, eventually some cells give up that broad range of possibilities and become committed to narrower 
occupations and specializations. You know, we have at least 200 or 300 specialized cell types that make up our body. All the other cells make the transition from possibility to reality. And those migrating primordial germ cells are the last cells to give up a wide range of possibilities. Oh, I like and, them and for their, like, pugnaciousness. <laughs> yes, yes. And so that sentence, from possibility to reality, is kind of the thing that we were looking for when we looked for David Page. We're looking for this person who can just help us step back and be like, why is this, this story important to consider? And a lot of the times, you don't really know that until you begin reporting. And you'll get interested in certain details and you need to justify that excitement. And so you're like, okay, let me find a person who can fill in and stand in this place for me and explain it to people. Um, and then another part of reporting is just like stepping back and being like, okay, do a lot of these people sound the same? Are we representing everybody? Is this just science jargon and like ways that you can combat that? It, you can do it in a lot of different ways. And one way that we did it for that episode was like, okay, let's just like figure out how normal people process this like gonads or magical organs phrase. Um, and so that is how the opening scene came about, which is probably my favorite thing ever created. And the name of the series is... Gonads. I know you're thinking, why? <laughs> I'm gonna ask you a question, you can say no. What do you think about the word gonads? Gonads. That's a crazy question. It's almost like that word moist, where it gives you like a little... Uh, yes, that word does have certain connotations. What do you think? Gona, isn't that nuts? It's a slang term for balls. Balls. Testicles. Testicles. Balls. Definitely balls. Definitely balls. Definitely balls. Yeah, Gona is like... Just used in like... Stupid boy humor. So almost like toxic masculinity situation. You just think like sweaty balls and male jokes, pretty much. Like kick you in the nads? Great. Would you think it has anything to do with ladies? No. No? No. Oh, no? <laughs> <laughs> and so that came about last, pretty much, and the person who made that amazing music is sitting right there and is going to have a presentation right after this. <laughs> um, but basically, that just shows you like this whole span of like people that you're looking for when you find a story you're interested in. and like. Just Molly went out in Washington Square Park and found those people. So it doesn't have to be like a big, fancy, like head of the Whitehead Institute, which we found, but then we wanted to balance that out with someone who felt like way more approachable with these, these collection of voices, just like random people on the streets. And I think that kind of goes in a little bit to like what Annie's probably going to talk about. And you just send it off there. <laughs> So I think I do a lot of um, doing and not a lot of explaining. So I want to, I want people to feel very free to just be like, I don't understand, or I have a question, or stop right there, or like back up, or what's that? Because I think I just, often my job, I just go into this zone in Pro Tools, and then I have, I, I stumble to explain what I'm doing. Annie, yeah. stop. Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes. Um, this is awesome. Before you start, I wondered if you could just like lay yeah. out some basic parameters, okay. like how many episodes do you guys have to make every year? Ooh. How many times do you start on the research and then you realize, okay, there's not really enough here. We didn't get all those magic mm -hmm. quotes or all that great tape and then move on, right? Like um, there must be a funnel, right? Yeah. There's a real wasteland, a graveyard. I even have an actual folder on my drive called Graveyard 
where I've put things that I don't want to let go of, but they're definitely dead, but they're just <laughs> not totally gone. Um, I don't know how many we put out a year. I can't. Uh, it's three uh, a month? Three a month, yeah. Yeah, three a month. Uh, and that's, uh, so they're produced over the course of, um, in some cases, uh, months or years. Okay. Even each one, so there's a process of, um, you know, each piece is in a different state mm -hmm. over the course of a long period of time. So to get those 36 episodes a year, you're obviously discarding probably another... So many, yes. Many, many thousands. Ideas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's one of the most striking things for me when I started at Radiolab. Um, the, uh, the amount of kill stories is, was, was crazy to me. I worked on a lot of different shows and... and uh, they just really, it felt like they, they were saying no to everything, honestly. They do. Yeah. It's yeah. mostly no. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. thumbs up, thumbs down. Like, it's, yeah. at the end, it's just like, which is, is disheartening, but then you're just like, God damn it, I'm going to get a story. <laughs> um, so yeah. it works so cool. out. So, yeah. that's, so we're, we're at the point now where you have found that magic story, and now you're going to do some mm -hmm. digital yes, audio workstation. Some thingies. Right. Yes, yeah. okay. so you got your tape. Yeah, I'll just go. So you got your tape. Um, we do this thing called uh, selects, where you sort of like take, you try to reduce the hour and a half long interviews you've done to maybe 20 some minutes. Everyone kind of listens to those. Um, you get into a room, you do a storyboard, like what is the best way that this story could go? Let's do our dream version, write it out. Sometimes we do a mood board where we have this sort of like Google Doc where we're just like, does this feel like a grayish story to you? Put the color gray on there. What about disco? Throw a disco song on there. What about dandelions? That could be, so just like, you know, painting this sort of like palette of color and that really helps the sound design down the line as well because you're just like invoking all of these textures and colors um, and moods. Um, so your selects, then the selects, I, I make some of them, um, I also, other people will make them, but then I often just get a whole pile of selects, which are like the reduced interviews, and a storyboard, and then they're like, okay, go make the thing. Um, and it takes forever, and you hate yourself a lot while you're doing it, because you're like, I forget how to do everything, and I suck. Um, but then it works out somehow, I don't know why, there's a lot of late nights and snacks. Um, so I'm going to talk about... Uh, just at the very beginning of this story we did called Nukes. It's a really long story. It's, it's, um, it's, hard, it's heavy, it's hard to listen to, but it's very important and very cool. Um, I'm not going to sort of like give you the whole story about it, but there's this character named Harold Herring, and he's very important because he asks a very dangerous question that gets him kicked out of something, and then he sort of suffers for it. Um, and we meet Harold, he's 81 years old, and this is him sort of saying what he, um, what he did before he was a missileer. Missileers are those people that sit underground and they get a call from someone important saying, we are being attacked, turn the keys. And they turn the keys and then a missile gets launched. And so it's a really like intense, intense job. Um, and he was training to do that. And this is um, a very rough cut of him just explaining what he did beforehand. You had a fairly distinguished career, I guess, in Southeast Asia and in Vietnam, uh, flying helicopters. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your military background? Yes, uh, most of my career was with the uh, Air Rescue Service. I was uh, stationed at Clark Air Base in the Philippines at the time. And uh, basically, uh, any time that the strike force uh, headed out and uh, uh, air crew went down, got shot down, whatever, 
we would then uh, scramble our search and rescue forces, which uh, we would launch two Jolly Green helicopters, uh, heavy lift helicopters, uh, with uh, old Navy Sky Raiders uh, that were just fantastic uh, to come in and prep the area before they brought the helicopter in for the pickup. Uh, the helicopter was extremely vulnerable once it started lowering the hoist cable and maybe a pararescue man was going down if the, vent, the, the gentleman or gentlemen were in, uh, injured that were on the ground and uh, they, they, they were stuck. Uh, and a lot of times uh, they would, the enemy would wait until that process started before they opened fire. Okay, so um, what you have there is a man saying what he did beforehand. There are some details, some nice little details in there, but it's pretty halting and you don't have a lot of sort of emotion um, within that. You, it, what he did was quite terrifying and stressful, but you don't really get a sense of that from his tell. Um, so my first reaction, because the story is like a thousand hours long and there are so many moments where there's like super sound design spaces and you want to, when you build a scene, you want to think about like the balance of super sound designed to just basically naked um, audio because you don't want the listener's ear to get tired of one sort of texture or, or sound. Um, so the, for this part, first I was like, all right, let's just get through this guy. Um, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not being dismissive of him, but there's just so much cool stuff we have to talk about him, talk, uh, say about him, and I want to get to the good stuff. So my first impulse was to rush through this. And it's funny because, so the way we track our stories, I'm sitting at my desk and there's like everyone around me, people are like talking and listening and eating snacks. There's a lot of snacks. <laughs> and there's like the Brian Lear shows right there and they're making phone calls and, uh, and then uh, anyway, so you, and you have this mic at your desk and you're like, okay, Harold Herring is, and you're trying to be like, uh, and you're also like, when I first made this, I was sort of like fairly new-ish to the show. Maybe I'd been there a year and I was really shy. Um, anyway, so you can hear that in my tracking. <laughs> oh, that it's not. Mm. Oh, it's not playing. The sound doesn't work here. Dylan, oh, this happens a lot at the office too. You're like, Dylan, fix this thing. <laughs> and then I don't. Yeah, he's like, I don't know. <laughs> This is Pro Tools. This is the program that we, uh, this is our audio editing software that we use. It's sort of a love-hate relationship. Can we try this, Cable? Oh, it was, it was only coming out of the computer speaker. It's, yeah. I don't think it's going to, let me see. Yeah, no. <laughs> Jeremy, it's okay. to the rescue. It's okay, you put in P3s and they can like see it. That's so bad. Open. There you go. Jeremy. HDMI, there it is. Jeremy, thank you. Jeremy's a WNYC. I just go straight to the mini cable. That's the matter. <laughs> Old school. It's going to start it back up again. Yes, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, here we go. Okay. He's a retired Air Force pilot. Yes, most of my career was with the Air Rescue Service, and this was during the Vietnam War. Uh, 
He was part of a team that was in charge of rescuing the soldiers who were in trouble in enemy territory. And a lot of times, the enemy would wait until that before they opened fire. So, okay, so you don't really get a sense of what he's doing. You're kind of rushing through it. Um, it's not a very good job. <laughs> the first one. It's not very good. Um, you don't. You, like, you sort of get a little bit of background, but you don't get a lot. You, you're sort of like left trying to. You don't really know what he did. There's no like actual understanding. Um, so we do a lot of drafts. I think this. Oh yeah, chapter version forty uh, is maybe the la one of the last ones. But anyway, this is version seven. But you're building like a whole thing here, so it's like not all of it. Um, but I'm just gonna do the front. Okay. All right. So I was like, well. Maybe I'll put in some archival, make it feel alive, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because often when we introduce someone, we're like, hey, this is so-and-so, so-and-so. It's like, hey, I'm so-and-so. I used to do this and this and this. Like, cool, let's move on. And so I was like sort of still trying to do that, but I, I think there was a part of me that felt like this part is important. Maybe I'll put some uh, sound design and some archival in there, and we'll just see, like, maybe that will be enough. So let's check. Yes, most of my career was with the Air Rescue Service, and this was during the Vietnam War. He was part of a team that was in charge of rescuing the soldiers who were in trouble in enemy territory. And a lot of times, the enemy would wait until that before they opened fire. So it was a super... So it's like a little more alive, but it's still pretty like, what is going on? Like you can't really see it. There are no details. You don't, you don't have any understanding. And I think that's the thing that the more I work at Radiolab, the more, because like, when you go into edits with Jad, he's like, I just, I just want to see it though. Like I just want to understand exactly. And these things that I, I thought were like boring and we need to get through them because they're not part of the whole body of the story. He zooms in on these parts and it's like this, I don't know, the balance of things is so tricky. Um, so the sound design is like starting to come together, but still like you don't really see it. And as I'm building this, so this is version seven, we're moving through these different understandings of what the story is. The purpose of this little moment is changing because I don't want to just say what he did with his life and this is the next part. I want to say this is the thing that he did and it was so intense and so, so much adrenaline and so demanding that he wanted to find the next best thing, which in the Cold War era was being a missileer, which meant he was like sitting at the desk like, waiting to turn the key. Like he was just like an adrenaline guy. And I wanted to show and like help people feel that um, with this scene so they could understand why he would possibly want to be a missileer. Um, so there's like the purpose of this scene switched as well. It's not just like who is he, it's why is he? Okay, so then I was like, let's do it, but let's add detail. So I'll bring back in some of his little tiny, <clears throat> his little tiny details. And I also want to understand, so what does it mean? I had to actually go and learn. So he, he gives sort of like a very broad description of what it means to be in a Jolly Green helicopter and go rescue people. But I went and watched a lot of videos about what that meant. I did some reading about what that meant. Um, I like was sitting at my desk crying because someone was interviewed about rescuing. Like I really was like, I want to know what this guy went through. And when I learned, um, I just I was like, well, we gotta like show people this. Um, so this is I, I the sound design is more. Um, I think it fits in better with the writing, and the writing is just more. Um, I let him give details. I give details as well that he didn't give us. 
Harold. Right. So, like, you had a fairly distinguished career, I guess, in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, uh, flying helicopters. So, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your military background? Well, most of my career was with the Air Rescue Service. And anytime the air crew went down, got shot down, whatever, it scrambled their search and rescue forces, including two jolly green heavy lift helicopters. It'd fly them in, hover over the survivors on the ground, lowering the hoist cable. A pararescue man would climb down to the forest floor, find the injured soldier, and attach him to the cable. Yeah. And else was happening, the helicopter had to hold steady, hold their hover. And a lot of times, uh, the enemy would wait until that process started before they opened fire. And I'm just going to show you this other part because it's a thing that I, I'm like trying to untrain myself from doing. I really like, I really like drones and sad sounds, and um, they always get cut at the last second. But I'm going to play this thing. This is how I would have played it, and then you'll see the next version is like totally cut out. But. Um, Let's just go, let's just see you have. Started before they opened. I also use a loon sound. That was exciting. Started before they opened fire. I had some wonderful experiences. Uh, probably chief uh, among them was my crew and I. We picked up a pilot that ejected into the North Sea at night in the wintertime. Wow. Uh, 200 miles out to sea. And we picked him up and brought him back. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> so is this okay? So that whole like loon thing gets cut out, but I think it's really beautiful. So I get to show you guys. Um, I'm going to show you the sort of very close to final version of it, um, and that involves includes Dylan's music. Oh yeah, there's some plugins I have to. Oh yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> Um, so the addition of music to that scene, the archival, I'll tell you where, the archival is from an old um, documentary where they actually, where there's a guy with a camera in Vietnam on the Jolly Green helicopter like, oh, you okay, and filming them, and definitely made me cry. And all of that archival is from that. And also, so you want to be like ethically, this is not Harold that you're having tape of, and so you want to, with the music, it really helps sink it into this like historical time where you kind of like cue the audience like this isn't Harold. The sound of this person in a helicopter is not Harold and the music I think really helps you do that. So let's see here. Oh yeah. Also we have Latif who is the narrator and the reporter for this story. He is the one you see the green it's no longer yellow, uh, which was me. This is Latif now. Um, so he tracked his his narration. So, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your military background? You well, most of my career was with the Air Rescue Service. This was in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. And if an Air Force pilot went down, got shot down, whatever, Harold and his team would jump into their helicopters. Two jolly green heavy lift helicopters. It'd fly them in, hover over the survivors on the ground, lowering the hoist cable. And then a pararescue man would climb down to the forest floor, find the injured soldier, and attach the cable to him. Yeah. And while that was happening, Harold had to hold the helicopter steady. He had to hold his hover. And a lot of times, uh, the enemy would wait until that process started before they opened fire. I had some wonderful experiences. Uh, probably chief uh, among them was 
my crew and I, we picked up a pilot that ejected into the North Sea at night in the wintertime. Wow. Uh, 200 miles out to sea. And we picked him up and brought him back. So, um, so that's sort of like a very close to final mix. Um, this is Latif here. I'm going to pull him out for you. Whoops. So the way we track is it takes forever and it's really fun and annoying. Um, <laughs> Because it's because Latif is he's like the most fun guy to track with because he makes jokes every second. That's why it's so inefficient but so wonderful at the same time. <laughs> and another thing is that like I would track what I think Latif should say, but then he'll come in and bring his own personality. So like I wouldn't say it that way. I'd say it like this, and he'll throw in like a pun. Like I never have thought of that. It's brilliant. Um, but so in this, I'm gonna just this is one side. So you're not gonna hear it. Soren is our editor, and he's on the line. He lives in um, Madison. Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, he is uh, sort of coaching Latif. He's like, say that again, say that one more time, say it faster, say it slower. And Latif's like, okay, good, 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 good. And so you're going to hear like Latif kind of just try to say these things a whole bunch of times. So. This team would jump into their helicopters. Harold and his team would jump into their helicopters. Harold and his team would jump into their helicopters. <laughs> so that one felt good. Hey, yeah. So Soren's like, don't do that again. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay, okay. Okay. Sure, sure, sure. Harold and Harold and his team would jump into their helicopters. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. Um, Harold and his team would jump into their helicopters. Okay, you can see how like it's so such such anguish to cut these tracks, but it's also really funny because they're little Easter eggs. Um, so what else did I want to? I guess you can see the sort of like the real difference between that first cut of him just like and then like <coughs> I went and I was in Vietnam. Like he's we want to honor his story by bringing it alive rather than just like his television. It doesn't show the adrenaline rush, the purpose, and all those things that he felt. And um, I think with sound design and with writing, super detailed writing, like let, make sure you can understand exactly what this person did. They climbed down a thing, they jumped, it was windy. I wish I'd put that in because I'm sure it was windy and they grabbed the person and they went up and You can really feel it if you sort of help them paint the picture um, of their life with writing um, and with archival and with music. And you can like, really feel it and then move on to the next part. Um, also, yes, questions? Yeah. You, you use the term sound design. That sounds like internal jargon. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Right. Well, yes. Dylan yes. will make that clear. Dylan yeah. is our director of sound design. Yeah. So maybe that's a good segue. Uh, okay. Yeah. But, Thanks. But, but one big <laughs> yeah. picture question again. Mm -hmm. So the parts you were playing for us were this label like chapter two. So I'm assuming that there are many chapters in the finished episode, and we were listening to a clip that's like no more than two minutes long, and a typical episode might be 20 or 30 right. minutes long. Right, so how much bigger is the finished yeah. virtual session, and how yeah. many, you know, God, I mean, that's a lot of work. It's so episode. long! Yeah. <laughs> you hate yourself so much when you make it. You're like, why am I here? Um, often, if, sometimes, it, like maybe I would make the whole thing myself, or myself and another colleague would, you know, split it up, like tackle. You would do chapter one, I'll do chapter two, and then we'll pass them around and collaborate. 
Um, this is mislabeled because we're sometimes we're a little, I don't know, when it gets down to the wire, you're like, it's chapter one, chapter two, I don't know what it's called anymore. So this is actually chapter one. I'm not sure why it's labeled chapter two. This is a little fun trick for going to sort out at the end of it. Um, but it's 22 minutes long, and then I think the actual whole piece is maybe something like 40 or 50, because there's an Easter egg, so there's six minutes out. of ticking clock, which drove people nuts, and, and, or people loved it, so whatever. And then there's this scene of an atomic, uh, someone experiencing an actual detonation of an atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I forget the question. It's sort of like an aside that you like sort of drone sound or sad sound, and they often get cut. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, if there's a, the editorial or storytelling reason that perhaps that happens. Yeah, it's just because it shouldn't have been there. <laughs> when you get, I think I get so emotionally invested in every moment, and it's so important to have an editor step back and be like, mm, that doesn't make any sense. But I'm like, why? It's so, it's, you know, this drum's sick. Um, but, I think, uh, I, I can't, can I, yeah. I think that there, there's also, um, one of the things that Wade just alluded to is that um, this is one little moment uh, in a, in a long story, and in fact, his story, which is as compelling as it is, is just one little portion of the larger story about nuclear weapons and who has the, the power to, to use them. And um, so there, there are some decisions being made, especially about the sound design. Um, you can only, actually, Annie brought this up earlier, it's about change in texture, and sometimes it's not the, the right texture to sit with for an hour, or it's not doing what you want it to do for the for the whole in that moment. Sometimes, and actually, when it comes to drones like that, or things that uh, are, did you say sad and scary? Um, scary if if you withstand that for a whole show, um, you won't have uh, sort of a peak and valley uh, arc going on. So we're always trying to think about how this one little section affects affects the whole. Does that make sense? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. When you're kind of editing you know, different parts and you're putting the whole thing together, who holds the space for pacing and that kind of tonal shift up and down? You mean uh, within a chapter or within the whole? Within the whole piece. Um, I think so. What we do is I'll spend a chunk of time working on this, bounce it out as an MP3, so just uh, turn into a, like a little compressed MP3, send it around to the editorial staff and whoever's working on the project, and um, everyone listens. So you get like a, you can step back. You're not in this mess. You listen. You maybe go on a walk, and you get a real clear sense of the pacing just from like stepping away from the machine for a bit. And we do multiple, multiple, multiple drafts of that. So like here's version 21, or here I put the drone back in, or whatever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help myself. Um, yeah, stepping away, stepping away, and having um, having also so Latif isn't usually in Pro Tools, but he is. Um, <laughs> um, he uh, is able to like so so because he's not sort of mired in the muck of it. He's able to have like a good viewpoint. And Soren, our editor, is very very good at just sitting back and listening. So it's just stepping away from this and hearing it all together. So, yeah. uh, could you talk a little bit about how you source different sounds and music? Like, are they are they from licensed libraries versus created from scratch? Yeah. Versus, um, yeah. Like, 
Sure. That may be a question that... Do we want yeah. to segue? Well, yeah, I don't know sure. what time it is. Yeah. Is I, it a good time? It's a good segue. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so we were just talking about this on the way up. Um, radio Lab was, was made uh, at a time when radio, if it's, if it's on terrestrial radio, you could use anything. It's, it has to do with a, um, a license agreement between uh, the record companies and uh, public radio. Um, and when podcasting came along, that changed entirely. Um, and Jad was already making a lot of his own music back then. He, he is a particularly um, crazy genius at lots of different things. It started on terrestrial radio, yeah, before podcasting. Um, and uh, so, um, so he, he actually studied composition at Oberlin um, and, uh, and was into music. Um, so he was making a lot of the music and or changing existing music back in the day. And that had to change into either licensing music, uh, which is pretty rare actually. Um, now, uh, we compose most of the music on everything, on every show. Um, and, uh, and that's part of the reason why I came on board um, about eight years ago. It was, um, uh, uh, it's, it's a lot to do. The, the sort of um, standard that we set with the show was to have each show um, have original sound design or at least an original, to actually to answer your question, I think of sound design as the art direction of if you I think about um, what we do in terms of film like probably more than I should, but uh, I think of the sound design as like the art director or the art direction of a piece and um, so thinking about it in those terms, um, you can start to either form it early the way uh, Annie was doing in this piece or you can think about it broadly um, but Whatever it is, we have to make it ourselves. Um, and uh, we just, I was brought on to, to do that for, for the show. Even though everybody um, does a little bit of it, or a lot of it actually, uh, themselves, uh, I'm kind of like the, the bottleneck at the end. So. Yeah. Yeah, at this stage, I think that um, because I think of it as art direction, they're, they're one and the same. Actually, I would say that sound effects, music, and um, mixing have sort of morphed into one thing in, in the podcasting world, at least. Um, and I think it has um, in the, maybe excluding sound, no, not even excluding sound effects. I think it has in the music world also. I think. Um, most musicians these days are are incredible producers in some form. They they understand sound uh, and mixing in a way that back in the day, as a musician, I didn't think about that stuff as much. I sort of left that up to the engineers. And I think a lot of uh, and and everything has sort of come together into one thing. And I think about it that way. I think most people on the show think of that about it that way. Um, and even though we split this up into three parts, um, it, it's really uh, just another part of the same process. The moment you start to write a piece or write a section of a piece and you're uh, handling things, 
you know, thinking about pacing, uh, what was his name again? Uh, Harold. Harold, mm -hmm. yeah. So right away when she hears that first um, interview, she's thinking about pacing. How is this going to, uh, how can I handle this in the, in the, in the larger scheme of things? What, what's it going to, what's the pacing going to do to our piece? That already is sound design, in my opinion. And, and the, the reasons for adding um, either the helicopter sound or something abstract, uh, musical tone, um, they're very carefully thought about, um, and they're almost always for some sort of pacing purpose. Um, not because we can do them. Like, you can pretty much make any sound now. <laughs> uh, anybody here can, actually. Um, so it's, it's not that much, the, the, the creation of the sounds are, um, is something we could definitely go into, uh, but from the get-go, we're thinking about it as a, as a writing tool. So Dylan, um, did you have any clips you wanted to play just to kind of finish out the story? Um, yeah, I could play, uh, um, I could play some clips. Um, Do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also want to take a lot more questions because, um, all right, is everybody here, are, are most people makers in that people are making stuff? Yeah? Raise your hand if you make a in, podcast. In, in audio? Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, let me see here. I have this, um, I have this video that I took that, um, <laughs> when I played it for Jed, he was like, what the hell was I saying? But, but um, I, I, so, thinking about sound design as art direction, one of the things uh, I like to do is, uh, I try to get the producers to do, is think about uh, a mood board. Um, and that's a loose term for putting a bunch of um, related or unrelated um, ideas together. They could be graphic, they could be musical, they could be, uh, this is like a, a, a marketing technique. If you were to go into uh, a marketing room um, and to get everybody on the same page, thinking about the same thing, uh, you sort of throw associative um, ideas together into one bucket. And it helps in like, um, you know, well, let me give you an example. I was working with uh, somebody about with their new show. They wanted to consult with me and, and uh, their new sh show was gonna be, he wanted an urban feel to it. Um, and that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so what I did was try to encourage him to put a bunch of like, what does urban mean to you? What are the picture, you know, just grab images off the web, um, songs, sounds. Uh, and those are going to translate more easily to other people since this is all collaboration. Um, you need to get everybody thinking in the same way. And so that's, a, that's sort of an art direction trick. Um, the clip I'm going to play you is um, a discussion between Molly Webster, who you heard earlier, Jad and I. Um, mostly Jad talking here, um, uh, about a piece she did um, uh, for surrogacy, about, about surrogacy and this sort of like global network uh, um, and commerce around uh, surrogacy. And so we had a mood board discussion early on once a lot of the tape was collected, but it was still in the early writing stages. Uh, and Jad had this sort of general mood map of how he wanted the thing to go. And anyone who's worked in uh, 
film would be more um, used to conversations like this, I think. Hopefully this works okay. And, uh, and Turn so the the idea, the, obviously the idea is like chapter one and chapter two have very different musical, uh -huh. they're like almost different, not just different musical moves, but almost different orchestras. Mm -hmm. There's like a small, a small orchestra for chapter one, and then there's a bigger one or something. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. So I was thinking, okay, part, start, when you start with the party, the party's like the prelude. Mm -hmm. Like I was at a party and I, I saw my friend and he had a thing and I got a shit. Mm -hmm. So we backtrack and there's like the love story, right? Mm -hmm. so you have like a little love theme. Mm -hmm. So there's some way in which there's a Ptolemy theme that's like kind of sweet and almost cloyingly innocent. Mm -hmm. And then, then they're like, we want to have a baby. And then the hand of fate comes in because they're like, uh, what are our options? One, two, three. So there's like a fate theme. So there's love, there's like two, two, two men want to make their way theme. And then there's fate says no. So there's a there's a love theme and then there's a fate theme. This mm -hmm. is the world saying this. So then they go to the conference, which is an extension of their love theme because this is they're in a conference with a whole bunch of other people who are in a similar thing. Mm -hmm. And this little kernel of love that has been, has been taken from them and turned into something that's like a kind of an emerging world of commerce. Mm -hmm. You hear all these people selling and buying and selling. So then this becomes motion but it's born of whatever this is, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And they get to their sort of moral, they're like, what do we do? Mm -hmm. There you should feel somehow maybe musically a tension between, we're two guys just trying to make our way, and fate. Because one of them says, we're gonna change your life, we're just, we're doing this. The other guy says, no, but we're taking advantage for bad luck, which is like fate, right? So then there's some way in which whatever music ideas you create here, should Conflict during the scene. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we're saying all this, so maybe these scenes don't want any music at all. This is yeah, yeah, yeah. talking about that. Right now. Yeah. And then the ball, and then there's the baby, right? I see the baby. And something in here, a more spare thing, it's, it's at least mood wise like this. It's when I see the baby. Mm -hmm. so like the love thing? Yeah. yeah. But it should feel distinctly different. Uh -huh. It should feel like it's somehow connected to the mm -hmm. idea of that. And then maybe they're like, they start to have questions. And then this comes in. And then some sneaking bit of this comes in again. And then the earthquake happens. And, so, and this then triumph. So. <laughs> um, that is to say, th these conversations actually produce amazing things. Um, and a lot of times I, I see from, from the outside, the producers, reporters, um, especially Molly in this case, Molly um, thinks very scientifically and she approaches uh, her stories from a, a, like an incredible uh, knowledge base. And thinking in this way um, it can be totally uh, random, but it gets us thinking in, a, in an emotional way, which in my view is, is closer to the art direction. If you watch a film, um, you're not just listening to the story arc, you're not just watching the actors, you're watching all the other 
elements and, and experiencing the pacing uh, and the music all at one time. And in order to do that with a whole crew of people, you have to get everybody on the same sort of emotional space. Um, so, yeah, did you have a question? Or, so. How much tape does the team have at that point when you're walking through that, that sound? At this point, it was a crazy amount of tape for this story. Um, we had stringers in, uh, in India, Nepal, and in Israel, um, and we had translators, and uh, we, it, was, it was thousands of hours of tape. Well, pretty I well blocked out. Like, when you're describing it, you can kind of visualize what kind of tape you would need. Yeah, yeah, and actually what I did with this after the soundboard, I, I, I'm sorry I don't have it with me now, but um, um, after this mood board, uh, I, what I did is go back to Tal and Amir, who were the two, that was the couple. Um, I grabbed some of their raw tape, which hadn't been cut yet, but, but it was starting to be organized into, into a story. I grabbed some of that raw tape, and I just made a quick cut of it myself and started writing music to that be so that I could hear the way they spoke. And they were kind of like, uh, you know, Jan's idea here was like, this is a love story, and this is sweet. Um, and they were kind of like abrasive, their, their, their tone, just in the studio. Um, and so I had to um, play those two things against each other to, to make it what we wanted to, which was like, this is a sweet story about people in love wanting a child. Um, so I needed to do that hearing them um, while I wrote the, the music. Say that again, sorry? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard question, and, and in Annie's part, you could see like it changed many times. Um, it's it's delicate. And uh, I mean, the process is one of multiple drafts and, um, and trying to train your ear to hear things for the first time, which is something that Jad is really good at and I think a lot of us have learned from him. Um, it's, it's a talent to hear something you've heard a thousand times for the first time. Um, and so we do lots of drafts um, and if the music is is discordant somehow with the tone we're trying to set, uh, we'll change it. That, that's the simple ex explanation. Um, now, I'm just thinking of uh, one particular time, we spoke to uh, a woman about, um, she had given testimony, uh, she, was, she had been raped, and she gave testimony about a man uh, that was put in jail for a really long time. Um, she picked him out of a lineup um, and it, he turned out to be the wrong guy. Um, and we interviewed her, and she had told the story a lot of times. Now, this is something horrific and personal. And she had told the story a bunch of times, and it was very um, monotone, the way she was describing it. Um, and I remember we were searching for, what do, we, what do we do with this? This is obviously a very important part of the story. How do we handle it? And Jad said to me, he said, uh, sound design it and, and see how far we back it off. And I, I'm pretty sure I remember at the time thinking like, oh, he thinks there will be no sound design in it, but we're gonna try it. 
Um, and I was thinking the same thing, but I, so I went for it. Um, and what turned, what came out of that process of killing the sound design and the music over time was there's this one particular part of the story where she says what he looked like. And if you were to listen to her story, uh, that wasn't necessarily highlighted. That was just a part of her story. Um, but as we backed off the music, it became obvious that when she's like brown hair, blue eyes, square face, that's where we, we made some very subtle musical choices or, or sound design choices so that when she's in the lineup, we could use those same notes to, you know, guy number three, brown hair, blue eyes, whatever. And that came out of trial and error. Um, otherwise, it was, there was no sound design on, on that section. Does that make sense? So. I wonder what are the ethics around sound design? Woo! <laughs> yeah. If, it's, if somebody's talking about Hurricane Maria, mm -hmm. you put in sound from Hurricane Maria, or, or you can't find really good sound, you think it's yeah. what are the ethics it, It's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the difference between, I, I feel like what we do at our show, a lot of podcasts actually, not all of them, a lot of them are um, narrative nonfiction in audio form. Um, and so I try to think about it in the same sort of guidelines that you would think about narrative nonfiction. Um, a story that is, you know, you have a list of facts and you have the campfire story that's, that draws you in and then there's all this area in between uh, and and the story wants to be pulled away from a list of facts because list of facts is boring um, and into the exciting side um, but you always have the burden of this being a true story um, to make it you know that burden it has just jazzed your story the moment you say this is a true story it's like people lean in uh, so it has to be true um, and that plays out in all kinds of interesting ways sonically. And, and most of the time, um, uh, just in short, like I said, this is a whole topic in and of itself, um, but most of the time it's about um, <coughs> sort of uh, holding somebody's hand through uh, re recreating something. If you're recreating something, um, to use real sounds is a, is a very, uh, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a borderline there. Um, and so I think about it a lot of times, like you need to, sh if you're gonna use real sounds, you need to telegraph to those people listening without even them wondering that this is, that this is a recreation, this is not the real sound. Um, to say this is not the real sound, this is a recreation, is you've already lost there. Um, so there are ways of doing it. I often think, oh, there was one time we were doing a story on drone strikes, and I remember a producer came to me and said, do you get, uh, uh, like, there's a part of the story that I knew where uh, this car gets blown up. And he came to me and he was like, do you like metal blowing up, you know? And I was like, yes, I do, but, um, and, and let's have a little discussion about this. Um, and we decided in the end that the best way to, while telling the story, to highlight that particular part was a musical decision. So the, the impact that you hear of the car blowing up is very clearly musical. It's not a sound effect. 
um, it still gives you the concussion and the 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 sense of being of the horror of it without um, without you as a listener mistake. Was that actually um, sound or not from the original uh, event? So there are some obvious ones, like if we're talking about um, Newton, you know, like we're we're gonna play whatever we want because if you think that that's archival tape, then. Uh, yeah. so we've, got, we've got like uh, 12 minutes left, and yeah. I want to make sure that people feel free to ask questions of Rachel and Annie mm -hmm. and Dylan. Mm -hmm. And so let's just open it up for final questions. Um, and there are some back there. Uh, sure. How about you, and then you, and then you? <laughs> Great. Um, so, something about your process, there's obviously a lot of, uh, kind of playing with the trial and error, like you said, both in setting the mood and using sound design. Is there anything that really stays the same? Is there anything that you're able to set? I think so. we do sometimes. Oh, is it? Um, sometimes we um, like when we get down into the, sit, sit down in that room and talk about the storyboard. We'll just be like, okay, just like heat map. Let's just like throw out your favorite pieces of tape. Someone's like, I really loved when she reached into her purse and pulled out her whatever. Or I, I, the moment where so-and-so cries, that's like so moving to me. And so we sort of have these like lists of our favorite things. And I think often we try to, like those are like the hot, that's the hot tape. And we try to preserve that as much as mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. And then when you sacrifice those things, there's got to be like a good reason for it. Or, um, but that's yeah, the that's only thing I can think of. This is <laughs> that's a really good example. Yeah, yeah well, there, there, are, there are moments that, um, it, it, I'm thinking of one particular episode where we were going to uh, stop. Uh, we, we had a um, professor, I think, from this area, from MIT maybe, um, that uh, was able to slow down or stop light almost. And, and that, was the, that was the subject matter. She was telling how she did it. Um, and so in the course of sound designing that, or even writing it, we know that there are going to be very key moments she said it, and there's there's nothing else. There's no other way of explaining it than her saying it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like Annie was saying, there are key moments. Hopefully, there are you know moments that are emotional. Um, sometimes they just have to be key moments of like this is when she explains it, and you and you hang on to that. That becomes your like anchor for the story. Yep. I imagine that uh, sometimes uh, people on your team have real disagreements about what should. What does that look like? How do you, how do you work through that? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and only three of us left because yeah. we killed the others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, we do a lot of, especially with, I don't know. I mean, we do have editors. So the final say is like Jad and Soren. So, you know, you come up against like, I want this. And Soren's like, it just cannot be. And you just can't, you know, it's his show. So you can't. Um, but uh, I think we, we do a lot of like staff listening. So say if the, what sort of the topic is in any way sensitive, like we really need you all to listen and give comments on these things. And if there are disagreements, then we'll listen and very carefully address them. And if that person has a good argument, then, you know, we should listen to them. Mm -hmm. But it's funny, it does, you do all this fight and then it comes down to like, Jad like, no. And then you can't really, you could strangle him, but then he'd be dead and we wouldn't have any more radio labs. So. I think everybody here has worked in some sort of situation where that relationship does not work or there's something broken there. Uh, and I, 
I think that at Radiolab, like, we've really um, tried to nurse that particular interaction uh, as carefully as possible. Um, that is to say that there are people who make the final decision, but uh, those people are particularly open to what you have to say about it, not just the person who wrote the story. In fact, sometimes the person who wrote the story is like way out of bounds because they're just too immersed in the stuff. They don't know how to tell it. I mean, that, that happens a lot. So a lot of times it's another producer or somebody else not on that particular story that reflects on it in a way that's like, oh, I didn't think about that at all. Um, and uh, I mean, I think that's become more and more yeah. the case over the years, yeah. Way in the back room. Yeah, when you um, are getting interviews and listening to them, uh, do you have any methods or when you're listening for, oh, this is like, think of that guy from World War II where this is a good moment to break that up and you know do some cool sound design. Like, are there things that you listen for or process you have when you're listening to, how can I pace this differently? Like, how can I put a cut here and you know to make it more deep than just like, if you had just strung his Sound together and let him just be alone. Because mm -hmm. it was obviously much more richer when you did that. Yeah. Oh, wait, sorry, what was the actual question? So I mean, I heard what you said, like, but what's, what's your process when you're listening to interviews oh. and mm -hmm. trying to figure out, oh, this would be a good time to stop, divide mm -hmm. him, put something in the middle, mm -hmm. you know, or put music up here. Oh, I can see this thanks for a sound effect. That guy's like when, when basically to flesh something out and when to just quickly zip by it kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like just when you listen to an interview. Right. I think there's got to be a purpose to sound design. You can't just like smear it everywhere. It's got to have a real meaning behind it because it's going to get really, the listener's ear is going to get really, really, really tired of it. It's going to be lots of like bleeps and bloops and whistles and drones and stuff. And so you want to preserve that silence and that stillness of just a single voice talking as, as often as you can, I think. So when you do hit them with sound design, it's like, and you, they enter this world into <laughs> Vietnam, and then they're there. So um, I think it became clear to me, I initially thought, oh, we're gonna zip by this, just his voice, go, 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 but because um, the meaning of that moment grew and grew within the, the body of the story, and we just knew that as we sort of built it and saw the balance of things. Mm -hmm. So like that moment actually would really, really be nice to understand deeply what kind of tension he was under, what kind of stress, the exhilaration of that job, and therefore that is sort of trying to relate to that person so deeply, sound design really helps with that, yeah. rather than just like informational. And just like on the flip side of that, I'm like one of the newer producers on the team, and so I think I lean on sound design, and I'm like, this is gonna carry me through for seven minutes, and you're just like, that's not gonna work. Uh, so I think I like, as a newer person, you overcompensate, and you just like add a lot of music and things, and you're like, I do not need this. And so then I think it's a process to strip it away and realize when it's a moment to stop and like resonate in a moment and like have a signpost and be like, okay, we're gonna talk about this thing because it's important to the story. But you should like be conscious that you're like, if it's a slow moment, adding a bunch of music maybe isn't the best thing. It's just like, maybe you should just cut it all together. I think using uh, Annie's example too, um, uh, uh, when he was telling his story about what he did in Vietnam, um, it needed, pacing-wise, it needed the, the drama of like, what is he doing? Exactly what, what Annie was saying for that part. And then he stops and he tells this very special story for him 
that he saved this guy. Um, and if you notice, in the end, it wasn't in, um, in the original versions or in a middle version maybe, and he had the sound design in there, the sort of scary tones that were in there. Um, but I think if you hear it in the end, uh, the part where he's describing what he did needed to sort of be juiced, and then all of a sudden he, he tells a very personal story that's super short. But, it, but it's a personal story, and, and he's, his inflection even changed. And what that does is bring you out of the bubble in his head into him actually telling you the story, just for the moment. So there's, a, there's an arc there, and, and you feel it as soon as that sound design stops, and all of a sudden he's back in the room with you telling you this like, personal story that made him really proud. Mm -hmm. That's so. a good example. Uh, time for one, one or two more questions right here. I have a question about organizations. So you talk about working on so many different stories at once, and clearly for each story and each minute, you have so many different layers of people. And in terms of actually physically organizing things, are, do you put like each story on a wall? Does each story have a folder? How are you actually doing something where you can jump around and actually feel organized? Yeah, that was super, especially like for a new person, I was like, what the hell? There's like so many different nomenclatures that they use. And an important thing is like, we all use the same slug. So like a nickname for a story. So surrogacy was the one about the story about sur surrogacy. It had a different title, right? Yeah. Many. Yeah. yeah. So like it, it might not be the thing that you see when it's in the feed, but we have a story we all know it by. And from there, we're like very diligent about saving the versions. So like if you make one change, you'll make it version two and being like super diligent about keeping those up top. So if someone has to grab it, they get the most recent one and it's clear and there's an old drafts folder. So you just get that out of the way. It's still there if you need to grab it, but you want them to see like the newest version that they can pull from and Dylan probably. I mean, no, in, in, this, in this case, especially when you're um, trying to do three a month, we actually, we hired somebody about a year ago that is, uh, her whole job is air traffic control. Like what, what is the state of this piece and what needs to be done? Does it need another voice? Um, and keeping track of all that stuff so that any of us can dip into that story at any moment and know where it's at. It's, it's really hard, but we had to hire a, a very talented person to do that. So Oh, we do that sometimes, mm -hmm. and and it's a mess. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have that crazy post-it mess on my desk right now. Yeah. I mean, to worry, I think we worry from the get-go about everything, but uh, the, it's kind of like, I think about it like a photographer. A lot of times people, they, they'll look at a photo and think, well, that, that, act, that happened. Um, it wasn't doctored. But really, the moment the photographer is pointing a lens at something and looking through it, there are editorial decisions being made. And it... The moment we start chopping tape, we take an interview that's two hours long and use a little moment of it, which people do in a New York Times article or whatever, you're making editorial decisions. So to worry about it, absolutely. It, it, that is where the craft is. Because if you're, if you're going, much like, I like to use the, the um, uh, 
you know, like Truman Capote, like in cold blood. That is a true story. Um, mostly. Yeah, <laughs> mostly. Uh, but read that or and read like Seymour Hirsch, a book by Seymour Hirsch, it, it's, which is mostly true or mostly not true. I don't know. I don't know about that anymore either. Um, but then we're getting to like the list of facts against something that is like, uh, like a, uh, a powerful story as it's told. And all the decisions every single moment uh, um, affect that. Even the pacing of somebody. I, so many times I've heard, if people have used an ISDN here before, um, there, is a, there is a latency between two people speaking. If there's two ISDNs, that latency is usually expanded. And oftentimes in raw tape, you might get the impression that these people are not jiving. They're, they're, uh, maybe there's some tension there or something mm -hmm. because it sounds like we're so used to saying, uh-huh, yeah, mm -hmm, there's, there are facial cues or whatever. But you'll listen to that and think that there's some sort of tension, but it's really because the spaces haven't been cut in the middle. That is, that, that's a real feeling. That will, that will feel tense when you listen to it. There was no tension there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, that, it's that delicate. Mm -hmm. But there are times when you think you can't have any music under this song. For sure. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So, um, there's another session in this room at 2.30. Um, I'm sure that the three of you would like to, I mean, would be willing to keep answering questions, mm -hmm. but um, let's do that out in the hallway. Hey. Sure. And let's give a round of applause. <laughs>